I actually said to Stanley today, what if we stopped doing this podcast? For the first time, I really just did not feel like coming in and record today. I think you would feel relief for like two or three weeks, but then you would miss it. You're probably right. Maybe yeah. we just need a vacation. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's get into it. When's the last time? We, we probably took Christmas off. That's probably yeah. the last time we took time off. I think there is something about the commitment of it. I think, it, but I also think it's okay for you to not always be excited about something. Like I think there's yeah. ebbs and flows in terms of people's interest and excitement. I usually feel totally fine about recording. And I think I just, I was probably just lazy. It probably has nothing to do with this recording. I probably just did not want to leave my house, to be quite honest. And I can't tell if I'm, t okay, I know I've already bitched about the weather on this podcast before, and you seem to not think that it's hot in Hong Kong, which is unimaginable to me. But I just can't tell if I'm tired or if it's just the weather. Maybe you have what cabin fever. You haven't like left Maybe. Hong Kong in the minute. I don't minute. know, but I don't. I don't think about vacation and like. Neither do I. I don't know. I, I don't think that's it. I genuinely think it's like gross to be outside. Really, just did not want to leave my house today. Probably yeah. had nothing to do with wanting or not wanting to record this podcast. Yeah. Okay, so every week we are now asking the Macon Instagram for topics for banter for this intro section something came through this week yeah and the question was courtesy of at shop by leo who is also a macon patreon member Thank and his you. question was what are our current thoughts on the direction of brand collabos i.e sakai times nike times cause and i think that the general state of the collaboration is entering the the era of the super collaboration you know what I mean? Did you just make that up? Well, I mean, just add the anything. Super collab. We're in the era of the super collab, but it the makes total sense. The super collab economy. Sorry, interrupted you again. Okay, it makes sense. I mean, it feels like it has the greatest return on investment. Because like, for example, once you've collaborated with virtually everybody, what's left? Yeah. And I think that's where we're at right now. But also, I think that, I think the current state of, of affairs necessitated this move like it's boring because like nothing's really necessitated so much as that you you've run rampant throughout the rest of the cultural landscape and now you're kind of left with well who's left standing uh that's one way to look at it what i think for me when i think about collapse what gets me most excited is when people or brands with genuinely different areas of expertise or even visual identities come together so like if they already have too much of an overlap, 
it doesn't, it's not as interesting. Yeah, like two streetwear t-shirt brands. We've said this before. Yeah. Well, I think to that point, a lot of the collaborations you see currently actually fall outside the realm of like true innovation. They're not two cultural leaders or like industrial leaders linking up. It's not like Apple teaming up with, I'm looking at this pioneer DJ deck, right? Like it's not that per no. se. I mean, it's, and the question was more about the realm of yeah fashion and creative culture. I think the whole cultural landscape has just been like squeezed at both ends, like burning the candle at both ends. Like there's nothing really left. And to be honest, what is the incentive of you investing into the development cost of doing something that actually solves the actual problem? It's risky. It's it's something that consumes a lot of time and resources. So why not just go into something that's actually kind of easy? Like fashion is something that happens so often and is in relative terms quite easy to manufacture. Yeah, sure. I mean, I looked at the the cause uh Sakai Nike stuff. Oh, I think that's actually what's going up in the window right next to us right now. Oh, is it? Potentially. Yeah. I walked past it on the way here. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I don't know, maybe like the two of us, oh, it's hard to get excited or we're just like not. I spent a whole lunch talking about this and with somebody and yeah, we're for sure jaded, but at the same time in light of a lack of financialization, which is not the case, like there's a lot of financialization that goes on within cultural products today, right? Because everything's bought and resold. If that was removed, would we still have the same level of excitement? Or like would a younger generation be as excited? Which, I mean, it's somewhat speculative, but I think that we're mostly excited about the potential return on cultural products these days. Versus the actual story and intent behind why it exists. The potential financial return. Yes, of selling it on. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I guess last thing I would say is that maybe collaborations would be more exciting if it was with people slash brands that were lesser known in, in conjunction with big players. Yeah. So it's like Sakai, Nike, Cause, that's like three extremely well-known names coming together which to me is not as interesting as if it was there was one element that was like i was being introduced to for the first time yeah but then that lesser known entity that doesn't have a baked in network to sell this product doesn't inherently create sales right or reduce yeah, sales I mean, not for them but like oh from yeah, a yeah cultural yeah. creative perspective this would be more interesting to me i mean culture's just been commoditized all right. Which actually, to I'll be honest, intro today. God, we are, we're just the, the we, we old, get into it. We old can't, people we can't on the keep... rocker. Are you going to go first or me? Um, it's funny because the intro itself at one point led it, itself nicely to my topic, but then that last now bit there. Now it's kind of going back towards mine. I don't think it really makes a difference. All right. Let's lead with mine then. Let's go with yours. Yours is kind of an update to an episode a while back. My topic this week is Naomi Osaka. It's okay not to be okay. And the reason why I thought this was so timely was because you were like, oh, like today I don't really feel like recording. You know what I mean? That's kind of oh, like- Oh, yeah. Yeah, like it's totally oh, I fine. I think about that. Yeah, so following her controversial withdrawal from the French Open a few weeks ago, Naomi Osaka penned a letter for Time Magazine 
in regards to her relationship with her own mental health and the media at large. Uh, and I'm going to start off with the crux of it, which is sort of her personal learnings, sure. right? And I quote, lesson one, you can never please everyone. The world is as divided now as I can remember in my short 23 years. Issues that are so obvious to me at face value, like wearing a mask in a pandemic or kneeling to show support for anti-racism are ferociously contested. I mean, wow. So when I said I needed to miss French open press conferences to take care of myself mentally, I should have been prepared for what unfolded. I mean, that's being pretty harsh on herself, I think. But also, yeah, I think in retrospect, you know, what's interesting. Like this is sort of tangential. And I kind of felt that in light of the most recent Euro 2020 finals that transpired on the weekend, I was like, man, win or lose, like something bad's going to happen in the UK. And yeah. I mean, it happened, right? Yeah. I think that in general, it's like, it's almost clear. Although I didn't expect the the racial backlash to be as intense as it was because it wasn't registering in my mind, but it it's not surprising. So for those unfamiliar on July 11th, I believe, which is Sunday, it was the final of the Euro 2020 uh, championship between Italy and England. England ended up crashing out in yet another penalty shootout. And following that, a lot of the players, all the players who missed, who happened to be uh, young black footballers who play for England, were subject to a lot of racial abuse. And you know, it's been actually pretty sad because I think that, you know, the way that I've always looked at football, and you've, my, it's not any secret, like I always loved football and sports because it was such a great opportunity for people of all different walks of life to connect in one activity, right? You said that literally just last week's I episode. Did it. Yeah, I did. And then, you know, that's really kind of unfortunate that it's kind of transpired. And then, you know, there's a there's a bunch of people coming out and in support of these um, young players. And then, you know, to see it all happen was pretty, pretty, pretty like gut wrenching because no one aspires to miss a pen for their country in a final. It's just the way sports work. It's really yeah. ugly what came of it like i get being upset you know like sports like you said is this platform where people connect and there's like really intense emotions so i understand like having extreme emotions in relation to your your sport but this type of racism coming out of it is so yeah, ugly. I don't know another word for it. Yeah, it's, it's actually been pretty bad for sports in general. Like even a few days later, like this Japanese baseball player Shohei Otani. Yeah, are you? Did you hear about this? Yeah, With I Stephen heard about this as well. Yeah, like it was another thing where basically Stephen A. Smith, who is this dude who is like a a personality for ESPN, came out and said that Shohei Otani was not good for baseball because he wasn't English speaking or using an interpreter. Yeah. Which is kind of bullshit because like there's been a lot of Well it's uh, nationalism, right? Yeah. Or it's it's this warped sense of nationalism about what is representative of you and your country. And like baseball as a sport, yes, it's played in the United States in the MLB, but it's kind of a global game in a way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. anyway, to go back to what Naomi Osaka opens her letter with, this lesson one, I think it's what it reads to me is that it's a very human thing to be, or for me, I guess, my nature is like this, to be optimistic. And this kind of reads that way, that like when she decided to miss the French Open press conferences, 
she held some type of optimism about yeah. the reaction. And, you know, she's reflecting, actually, I miscalculated or like, the, you know, the the result of this was not what I had hoped for. And then uh, her second lesson was, and I quote, lesson two is perhaps more enriching. It has become apparent to me that literally everyone either suffers from issues related to their mental health or knows someone who does. The number of messages I've received from such a vast cross-section of people confirms that. I think we can almost universally agree that each of us is a human being and subject to feelings and emotions. Right? And I think that's pretty valid. You know, we, we used to discuss injuries for athletes more in like the physical sense. Like I sprained my ankle, I sprained my knee. And obviously now I think that especially in sport, like it was never discounted that the mental aspect of sport existed. It just so happened it was not subjected to the same level of healthiness, right? It was like you were an athlete and if you're physically able, then you're able, period. Yeah. Right. And I, I think, don't think we've talked as much in, or globally there isn't as much discussion of how are we taking care of athletes' mental well-being in the same way that there's tons of people who support their physical well-being? I personally look at that and, and you know, it kind of it kind of goes back to the intro that we had today, which discussed sort of your mental well-being or your, your just your, your energy level towards something, you know? And I think that there's a lot of things that come on the back of how you feel both good and bad. Like there are moments where, yeah, of course, like maybe maybe there's other things that I feel are more pressing, but there's something about doing things that you don't want to do because you are being pushed by someone else. Not saying that you are like physically putting pressure on me, Sharice, but I I kind of like that pressure because it's, commitment is something I believe in. And like this is like obviously challenging because for Naomi Osaka and countless athletes, people in general, like there's this interesting sort of place in the world you you have and there's like things that you want to do for yourself to create sustainability and there's also outside pressures that especially in certain cultures or whatnot you want to be part of the general machine i don't say that in a pejorative way i just think that like there's something about when someone is motivating you like my motivation to show up is in part to have a conversation with you but also because there's an expectation that i assume you want to be here too right so i think that that's something that for me has been the biggest challenge of unpacking is like, you know, it's, it's this sense of like you helping something in a broader picture versus you helping yourself. And both of them can take precedence in different moments in time. Yeah. I think when talking about mental health, something maybe we don't talk about as much either compared to physical health is like the gradation of how you're feeling. So like I mentioned in the intro, I just I didn't really feel like coming in today, but it it's not a serious feeling, right? Which I also acknowledge. I said, oh, I might have just been, it's hot. I don't want to go outside. It's not related to wanting or not wanting to record the podcast. And I feel like in Naomi Osaka's situation with the French Open and maybe other athletes, it only becomes apparent that there's an issue when it becomes very serious yeah. versus, you know, being there being some kind of system or i guess context in which you can share the more detailed like the nuances of how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis yeah. right and i think about this in a in a physical sense like if your knee was hurting you a little bit when you woke up you would like take note of that yeah and you wouldn't just wait until like i can't walk 
and then go see someone about your, you know. Especially when it's your livelihood yeah, as an exactly. athlete. And, but I think for mental health, often, whether you're an athlete or not, when it's like on a minor level, like I woke up today, I'm not really feeling it. We just gloss over it, you know, like mm. you just power through. Whereas the, even if it doesn't need to be escalated, it's like something that deserves mentioning to someone or yeah. like writing down or, you know, just taking note of that. Those are things that I, I personally track a lot on, like, how am I feeling today? Why am I feeling shitty? Like, oh, my ankle hurts. Why does it hurt? Right. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to be super introspective. Yeah, but, it doesn't have to be like, you know, it doesn't have to be an hour every day of like deep questioning yeah. yourself, I think. But I think on the level of like Osaka or athletes is not just being a mental note you make to yourself, but there has to be someone else who's aware of that situation. Because, yeah. you know, as we talked about however many weeks ago, Naomi Osaka has all of these other obligations and these commitments that involve, you know, her team around her and all these other people. So, yeah, I can move on. Yeah, go piece. for it. Yeah. yeah. What does she go on to write about? She goes on to discuss that she never really had an issue with the press or media per se. She just wasn't a big fan of the press conference. So I think that actually this is valid. When we first talked about this, it seemed like it was an issue, like a war between Osaka and the media. But in reality, it's actually a byproduct of the media, which is the press conference. So I think yeah. this is valid. Like, and she really spelled it out too. Like I do long interviews. I've spent time with press. Yeah. Like the press conference and media are overlapping, but also very different. Yeah. A press conference is a vehicle for media, but it doesn't define media. And had, had this registered with me more before, which I think we, we kind of touched on. We, we kind of treated them as two in the same. I'm not here to say that, you or know, you I told it. you so or yeah, anything. Okay. But one thing I did say in that previous conversation was that I think the French Open slash organizing bodies could relook at the press conference specifically yes. as a structure. You know, yes. how is this conducted and could it be revised? Essentially. Yeah. yeah. I guess for me it was more like this is the exact thing we're talking about. But it it seemed as though they were kind of bucketed in the same thing, both media and press conferences. It wasn't separated into two different things. Yeah. And I mean, Naomi must have realized that as well, which is why she took time in this letter to say, I think there's a differentiation to be made here. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, press conferences exist to create a soundbite. So sometimes the questions are deliberately structured in a way to do that. Uh, and then to kind of start wrapping it all up, Naomi discusses how just like regular employees are given sort of personal days, like this is something that could, should be also extended towards athletes. Yeah, she made a point. I think she'd gone like seven years and only missed one press conference. And actually, even after she skipped the French Open press conferences, every other tennis athlete continued to do their press conferences. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not an athlete like by a long shot. Okay. And I've never been within these like competitive systems. So I don't know like what the expectation is. And I know that everyone has different sponsors writing on media, but it does seem like a rational request. Like when she puts it that way, like, could you get a couple of personal days? The difference in this between an employee of a regular company and a athlete is that the type of product is, I mean, product is a bad way, but like one's in a quote unquote, like entertainer, a public facing entertainer. Versus, let's say, you're an office worker, you're an accountant. 
right? I think those are two different types of products. Like the the service you offer, one is entertainment where it's like public facing. The other one is like within the confines of a of a business that's behind closed doors. So that would be my pushback against it, yeah, which is why it's a little bit hard for you to be like, yo, I don't want to do any media or selectively choose when I want to do media. It is hard. It's hard. And I don't know how it would work in a larger scale. Like, let's say, you know, I think Naomi in the time letter says, you know, can we have a couple personal days a year? But that would be like across many tournaments and competitions. So who is kind of like keeping track? Like, who's the administration to like keep track of what? what each athlete is saying oh i'm this is my personal day or not and i also actually think about celebrities in the traditional sense like music artists and movie actors actresses like they have to do tons of press too i don't know what their obligations are either but i assume that's also similarly strict in requirement like if they have a movie coming out you got to go do all of this press and i'm sure that there's equally celebrities that are not and you know into it either yeah i mean i've watched i don't remember which celebrity it was but i recall him giving 10 interviews on 10 different talk shows and it was all the same delivery i think i i think i might know who you're talking about because the person i think of is henry cavill no i think it was someone that i was more familiar with okay but sounds kind I mean, of there's, a, there's so many super cuts right like henry cavill is the superman actor and he's in the witcher and when he did the witcher Every single journalist like asked the same questions because The Witcher is based off a of video game. And they all asked him, like, when did you get into video games? Why were you excited about making The Witcher in relation to you having played the video game? It was pretty funny. But also I feel bad for him yeah. slash everyone who has to do that. So I don't know. I, it's not. She's sort of proposing a solution. I guess neither you nor I are in a position to say what would like definitely work or not work. And I don't think she's trying to say that either. Like, this is definitively the way forward. But I appreciate her trying to come up with just a different set of rules, I guess, or set of constraints. And I'm sure there will be other people who will hopefully, you know, revise based off of what she's suggested and come up with some alternative ideas. Yeah, I think that's one thing is that rules are an interesting thing. I mean, (laughs) what's a cliche? Like, rules are made to be broken. but. I think that rules in general often are done because it just allows decision making to happen a lot faster. It's like it's either this or that, right? But I think that the modern era probably needs some level of gray zone because the gray zone allows you like I don't mean gray zone in terms of like up for interpretation, but yes, what happens it is like, hey, you know what? Um, you're allowed three sick days. You know what I mean? That's that's kind of what I d- mean yeah. by a gray zone. Oh, I don't think that's a gray zone. That's yeah. just a new rule, right? Yeah, like it's kind you of like three days. Yeah, yeah. It's like you can choose to take it if you want, kind of thing. Yeah. So, in closing, though, this is what she says: Believe it or not, I am naturally introverted and do not court the spotlight. I always try to push myself to speak up for what I believe to be right, but it often comes at a cost of great anxiety. I feel uncomfortable being the spokesperson or face of athlete mental health, as it's still so new to me. And I don't have all the answers. I do hope that people can relate and understand it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to talk about it. There are people who can help and there's usually light at the end of any tunnel. Michael Phelps, the swimmer, told me that by speaking up, I may have saved a life. If that's true, then it was all worth it. So yeah, I think that that's a a nice way of encapsulating it. I think this is the part that that a lot of traditionalists would, would push back on. Like, oh, I mean, she acknowledges this. 
she's in a tremendously privileged yeah. place to be an athlete that plays a game that not many other people can do and get paid a lot for it, right? Yeah. I do wonder, is it incorrect or correct to hold people at the highest level to a different level of transparency or demand more from them? I, this is like a really shitty example, but I was thinking like, oh, you know what? When you're a company that has the ability to impact a lot of people, aka like a publicly traded company, there's levels of transparency you need to provide. And like, yes, maybe this feels like we're productizing athletes, but on that same note, it's, I don't know, what do we lose by? What kind of transparency do you mean you're asking for? Like, Are you responding to, you know, athletes wanting to not do as much press or the fact that Naomi actually wrote this letter and being really honest about her mental well-being well it's almost like disclosure of injuries if we were to kind of redefine injuries as not just a sprained mcl or whatever right? it's actually like mental health also falls within the injury bucket yeah so should we be actually asking people to like also disclose that part of it I don't know if there's like a demand, like they have to disclose. But what I'm saying is like, situation. If, if it's part of the performance aspect of it, if like your mental and physical health is. Well, it depends who you mean by we either, like the public or like her team, like her team should definitely know. Correct. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying right now, like, for example, in certain sports, like athletes might sit out a game because, oh, you know, LeBron James uh, tweaked his back. He's going to be out for the next two games. Like, let's say LeBron James is going through some sort of doctor diagnosed mental you know ailment or whatever i I think it's great if famous people athletes celebrities whoever want to share about their mental well-being but i we're not entitled to know it well i think that public like but why is it different from you having a sprained knee are we entitled to know that they have a sprained knee as an athlete i think that that's part of it because there's not they're not able to play right but I guess the I guess this is weird we're using the words like demand or entitled because the public doesn't I don't get to make like a request to Naomi Osaka or LeBron James anyway and be like, can you tell me about your mental health condition? No, but what I'm saying is like, like who is asking for this information well, in, what your, I, in your like formation of this question? I mean, I don't I don't know if there's rules behind it, but it's kind of like in terms of the way the NBA does it. Like if someone's hurt, if someone's not playing, you know why they're not playing. And it actually it becomes somewhat of definitely. A, I mean, they could they could lie about it. Right? That's what I'm saying is like, do we definitely like doctors have to sign <sighs> off like they tore their ACL, they sprained a toe, like yeah, like I I, I actually behind the scenes I don't know what would be the reason why unless you're like trying to hide something. But what I'm trying to say is that by virtue of changing the perception around uh, not being 100, percent I think what like I'm injury, saying is like I think it would be great if athletes across the board felt comfortable in talking about their mental well-being and their condition but i think part of the reason why people aren't as specific is because there is definitely still societal stigmas around different types of mental health conditions yes but i think it's changing rapidly like for example i had a friend i mean yes and no i mean it's just you and me talking so like yes in this let's use the example of like hey how many people openly talk about going to therapy now versus like 10 years ago like I think there's you're seeing like a, for sure you're seeing a very large societal shift I'm sure there's going to be like some sort of st- statistics that back this up but I think that the conversation around mental health in the public sphere has changed significantly I agree and what I'm trying to say is that like I wouldn't say that it's as I would say I'm more pessimistic about the amount of change than you 
based off of what you've just said. Like, I, I think there is I still think a next, lot of people- incoming generation for sure is going to have a very different relationship with mental health. I think for sure, 100%. I mean, yes, like they have a different attitude, but I think there's still a lot of unlearning to be done even in younger generations. Like it's not something that's going to unravel as quickly as I feel like you're making it out to I be. Th- I think it's going to happen a lot faster than you think. No. I think that I just mean, the I whole. Hope, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I don't hope I, think I don't hope I'm right. Faster. I don't hope I'm right in this situation at all. But I think my perception of where society's at is like less rosy. But back to the question of like athletes disclosing, if people like you know at the top of their game, Osaka and Phelps and all these you know, people that are in the public eye feel comfortable talking about their mental health. One thing that I think is really great, which Osaka talks about, is the example that they give to younger athletes. Yeah. And you don't have to be like a professional athlete. You could be like a 13-year-old learning tennis for the first time and be really excited about tennis. And if Naomi Osaka, you know, writes this time letter about how she feels, then that might change your attitude towards your sport. Yeah. In a good way, in yeah. a positive way. But what yeah. I'm trying to say is that if if you're going to bucket physical and mental injuries, I'm, I'm using injuries because it's easier to describe yeah, physical sure. injuries, right? Like then what you think, what I think you're doing is you're actually putting them on the same playing field and you're removing stigma, which I, is I mean, why I think, I think that's why it's such an important thing for you to start treating these two ailments in the same light. And they both have a particular impact on your performance when you go and play, you know, night in, night out. I think it would be really great and it's imperative that sports teams and coaches and, you know, the people around athletes do that as well as like sports coverage. But the reason why I'm still like saying you can't, you know, demand people to be as honest immediately about how their mental health is versus like if they sprained their ankle is because there there's a reason why people would be hesitant. Yeah. Like I would be hesitant to say on air about my own mental health. I'm not I'm not even famous. Like just knowing there are listeners out there who listen to this podcast, I would rethink what I'm going to say about my mental well-being. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, I, no one's asking you or forcing you to like kind of adhere to any sort of rules or guidelines, right? I mean, like, I'm lucky we make this podcast purely by ourselves. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. I think her time letter is Great. I'm glad she had the opportunity to write it. People should go and read the whole thing. It's not actually that long. Yeah. All right. Should we move on? Okay. My subject this week is from an article titled The Inner Ring of the Internet by Ali Montag. This is a piece published in the newsletter Divinations. Eugene found this link. I wasn't familiar with Divinations or the platform that publishes it before this. Are you subscribed to it? Out of curiosity. Somehow, somewhere. I have no idea. I subscribe to a lot of newsletters. Because it's like they call themselves a writer collective. This is not related to the subject. Yeah. Divinations is published on this platform called Every. And then Every is like a collection of newsletters. Well, basically, it's like a media platform with a bunch of different verticals. Anyway, that's a tangent. Ali Montag is a writer and former reporter at CNBC who lives in Austin, Texas. And just to start off with, I wanted to say that 
This is really one of those essays that is probably better when you read it on your own rather than having someone read it to you, even though I am going to quote from it in a second. Because I, the reason I feel that way is that like the whole essay flows together, so it's not really easily divided into chunks. Yeah. And it's better if you just read the whole thing in one go. She opens the essay talking about how she meets up in Austin with a group of friends on Wednesday nights to talk about writing. And when she leaves those gatherings, she usually feels really buoyant and ready to work. But then later the week at home, she opens Twitter and sees all these other writers seceding. You know, like it, she opens Twitter and it's full of writers who are publishing and making money, landing book deals, seemingly not wasting any time. So the rest of the essay proceeds from that starting point that I personally find familiar. And I guess that's kind of the first question is like, is that? a situation or a mindset that you found yourself in where you're comparing yourselves to others and their supposedly visible successes. Yeah, of course. All the time. I think it's okay to compare yourselves as long as you kind of know the zoomed out perspective of it. But I think that I've said this before, but ultimately a lot of our sort of like our challenges, like our psychological challenges aren't, always based off of like external direct inputs so what i mean is that like it's not me coming and yelling at you sharice to do a better job it's me thinking to myself i need to do a better job in light of what i see outside you know like a sense of inadequacy isn't always something that's put on by other people oh so it's, what you're saying is we can't blame twitter for our sense of inadequacy essentially it's our personal battle we're forming with everything around us in terms of what other people are doing. So like the person who's the same age as you, but is wildly successful is not telling you directly, Sharice, you're, you're worthless because you're not on my level. Oh, it's no. more yeah. you personally think you're not on their level, which means you're worthless. Do you think there is some element of the problem, though, that is related to social media and the Internet? Yeah, I mean, social media as a construct like the way it's set up yes for sure but, but i it's think not it's not like these other players are setting out to like exactly. put you down exactly that's but what i'm it's saying the fact that you have social media as like this window into people's lives that can cause you like psychological turmoil exactly yeah so that's why i think that if you yourself can understand and control control is hard but i think just manage those expectations it changes a lot yeah and also like once you've been around long enough, you know that success and how things happen isn't just defined by like this person's great or amazing. It's like a combination of luck and, you know, things just lining up. Yeah. Right. No, that's true. And also just being aware that everything you see online is like this extremely filtered, watered down version of like the reality of their lives. So it might look like a book deal, but you don't know how they reach that path like or you don't know their own mental state or well-being like it's always easy to say the grass is greener without really understanding what it's like there and i you know just uh bring in another concept we talk a lot about is like media fragmentation on the basis that just because you don't see it doesn't mean things aren't happening like you know sometimes people are like oh are you still doing making i'm like yeah we we're still doing making like yeah. it's still been going on and it's like it's more active than it was relative to let's say a year ago right but yeah. if they don't see it then they don't know yeah and, and why don't they see it and like that could be a, a whole a bunch of things that could be out of our control exactly and oh. you know once you realize how 
I mean, we're very fortunate in the sense that we kind of understand how media works because it's kind of our job in a way. So I, I feel less shitty about it. I agree. Like, I don't personally feel... I mean, I feel shitty for going on my phone for other reasons, but I don't feel like I get sucked into like this comparative, you know, dread as much as maybe it's possible for other people yeah. to feel. I mean, what Not does to say that I'm better than others, but I agree. Like both of us spend a lot of time thinking about how media works. Yeah. I mean, if you personally have things that you are passionate about and you enjoy doing, it takes the edge off of it. So like, seeing someone else's successes doesn't impact you personally as much because you have things you're personally excited about. And yeah. like, I've, I've gone to this too, where like, you know, there, there might've been stages when we were launching Macon and I felt like while we were doing things I was proud of, it wasn't made matched with financial success, which in, in essence, like really kind of brought down my, my, my vibe a bit. But in retrospect, like, you know, once things even out and maybe you start getting recognition, could be a lot of ways like public facing recognition, financial recognition, like in terms of like getting paid or whatnot, then I think everything starts to change in terms of how you feel about what you're creating. And when you have a certain sense of like self-worth around what you're doing, it actually removes the need for you to be comparative with other people mm. or the impact of it is less. So I'm going to continue and Ali references a lecture that C.S. Lewis, the author, gave in 1944. Isn't and that the one that wrote The Land of Narnia? You actually know. Dude, man, we, we, we had to read that book in like grade whatever, five. Oh, it was a required book. Or I don't think it was someone part read of it, my someone, required Someone reading. read it to us, like a teacher read it to yeah. us. So C.S. Lewis is the author behind the Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, etc. The lecture is not about that. The lecture is about what he calls the inner ring, and he describes it this way, quote, In any group, there is an ever-shifting circle of insiders, who is on top, who is well-liked, who has the smartest ideas, who holds sway. And I think that is an interesting hypothetical question, actually, to ourselves, which we don't have to, like, respond on air, and probably for the two of us, it's different, as well as, like, who do we think of as being in the inner ring of the fields that we work in. And I think it's, you know, Ali talks about how we frequently fall into comparing ourselves to the members of the inner ring, insiders, and consider ourselves to be the outsiders. Though in actuality, like the way this is structured is that we could technically be in someone else's consideration of the yep. inner ring. It's just like different per person. It's all relative. I think it's just an interesting thought experiment to think about like, oh, if I had to think about like whether I consider there to be an inner ring in media, let's say, then like who are the people I place there? I understand the exercise, but I don't subscribe to it. But oh, no, also you shouldn't. for you shouldn't. different this reasons. This is not the point. Like, you yeah, shouldn't yeah. subscribe to it. And I'm not saying, like if you don't have an inner ring in your mind, like do not go and construct so, one. Yeah. Please don't. So I think that. But like when I read this, I intuitively felt like I did, like some like subliminal part of me does consider these people to be my inner ring yeah. and me being on the outside of that. But I'm not saying this is a good thing. I don't do it if you that don't have what, one. What I want to do is wait for you to kind of finish off and I'll return to why okay. I don't have an inner okay. ring. So here's a quote from Allie on what this compels us to do. You know, seeing there is an inner 
we, the people who think that there is an inner ring out there, quote, those of us watching outsiders are driven to emulate those seceding insiders. We can touch their success with our fingertips. We're drawn to chase after it. How can we do what they're doing? The only way to get into the digital inner ring is to try. Throw open the doors. Show the world what you're working on. Publish that draft. Send that tweet. Launch that newsletter. Let everyone in to have a look around. Then change and iterate your work with their feedback. Let popularity be your guide. And so she goes on to say that whether or not you subscribe to an inner ring, like the idea that there is one out there, that there are people who are seceding that you want to be like, means that you become incentivized to just make more work rather than really focusing on the quality of the work that you're doing Mm -hmm. and that you're incentivized to create as much as possible, as consistently and constantly as possible. This is a paraphrase, by the way, not a direct quote. And there's no real advantage or there doesn't seem to be an advantage to editing your work or taking time over it. And rather, it seems like it's advantageous to share every single thought and all of your work with as much people as possible. I wonder when C.S. Lewis gave that quote, if it had any relation to what the author just mentioned. So like, for example, I mean, was, the situation was so different. Yeah, that's though, what I'm saying. Like, he wrote in 1944. But what I'm trying to say is that, like, I think that psychologically this this concept is still valid, you know, 70, 80, 80 years later, right? What I'm trying to say is that totally in a relative sense, maybe someone subscribed to this was actually doing it and doing a, at the time, above average amount of output. Well, I'm thinking- Even though they didn't have Twitter. I did not go have, back yeah. and read. I think Ali did link to the original lecture. I didn't go back and read it. But just thinking in a pre-internet age, well- where it would still be like human nature to be comparing yourself to people. The inner ring is kind of like cliques in high school mm-hmm. where there's like a popular group and you don't think of yourself as like being in it, mm-hmm. but it's like a physical space. Yeah. People you've never met in your life on the internet. So then Allie goes on to question how this mode of like incentivization where your incentive to just make more and more work rather than focusing on the quality of the work you're doing, how can that possibly result in anything interesting or good? It's kind of a rhetorical question. She thinks no, right? She thinks that the context of comparing yourself to people and like trying to beat them online means that you won't be focusing on making good stuff. And this is a quote. The result of this thinking pervasive across the internet economy is a dreary one. This system culminates in the muddled median of everyone on Earth's most average taste, writes Vox's Rebecca Jennings. What we're seeing is the lowest common denominator of what human beings want to look at, appealing to our most base impulses. The result is, well, mediocre. And that's kind of the conclusion that she draws, is that if you chase being likable and being noteworthy, you actually wind up in mediocrity. And I'm going to read a little bit of an extended bit from her conclusion. The incentives driving creative work matter. It's just as important why you create something as it is what you create. A story written only for profit, attention, or fame won't be much of a story at all. The aim of art is to ask the big questions, writes the author George Saunders. How are we supposed to be living down here? What were we put here to accomplish? What should we value? What is truth anyway, and how might we recognize it? The work of a writer is to take those questions seriously, to take your work seriously, to take the chemical reactioning happening in the hearts and minds of your readers seriously. Again, from George, that's what an artist does, takes responsibility. 
Yeah. And so her conclusion essentially, you know, summed up is to just focus on your work solely. Easier said than done. I mean, the thing that I look at is the reason why I, I don't really have this inner ring is because I often look at people's inner rings and I think about what are the parts of it that I'm missing from their life. Because I think there's a lot of non-shareable moments that are probably part of it. And I think that's actually one of the more interesting things is that if social media influencers are to some people the inner ring, there's a lot of shit that comes with being like a social media influencer, like a successful one, like just the sheer amount of content, like to that point, you're kind of feeding a machine to be relevant for an algorithm. That in itself is psychologically extremely taxing. Yeah, I'm I'm not envious yeah. of that. Like uh, that's what I'm saying is like there's a lot of things out there that you think you want until you kind of understand the ins and outs of it. I suppose I was thinking of I guess I was trying to be a little bit contrarian. I was thinking about are there things about Ali Montag's essay that I disagree with? And I mean she doesn't explicitly say that. She doesn't say like, "Oh, all comparison is evil." J- just to be clear, let me say that again. She does not say that all comparison is evil. And I guess what I would offer is that some amount of looking at what other people are doing can be motivating. And that's like my own opinion, right? Is that not a lot of it, but to see other people get to a point where they're publishing a book, let's say, I think can lead me to feel like, oh, I could publish a book. Yeah, And in that case, it's Shows do you want to? Do you want to publish a book, though? This is a question for me. I mean, that's the thing. Is like, I kind I'm, of want to publish a book. Yeah, so that's good then. That's it's like some people like I will mean, see like, some sort of. This is a, I guess, a bigger life goal, not yeah. like an immediate one. But anyway, this is an actual example. From I my will life. let you write an exact example from my life biography. How's that sound? <laughs> I don't know that I want to write your biography, but thank <laughs> you for offering. I'm entrusting you with this gargantuan task i guess the fun part about writing your biography would be interviewing all the people in your life (laughs) and that for me would be the fun part yeah as opposed to like actually writing the details of your life anyway not the point what i wanted to say is that sometimes when you look at other people's work it can show you a potential path for success but it doesn't mean that you like i I totally agree yeah it doesn't mean that you want it and even if you do want it it doesn't mean that their path is exactly the path that you're going to take or that was going to work for you I do totally agree with Ali's conclusion, which is that like the most helpful thing to a person who's trying to do creative work is to just do work. Yeah. And there's no denying that. But it is like you said, like that's easier said than done. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the way you monetize, like obviously a lot of the people allows you to just a lot of the people that we deem to be in that inner ring are people that are probably financially compensated. I mean, there are I guess there are other forms of compensation, but they're they're making money off of their passions. And we often see that as probably why we want to be them, in my opinion. Like, especially in the context of this discussion and and our and the people that are probably listening to this. Yeah, I agree. It's seeing people being able to make money off of what they appear to love to do. But I, I think that everyone has slightly different appetites for different parts of that process. Like some people might actually put out less work, but because they're better at marketing, they might have outsized returns relative to the person that does better work or and doesn't market as well. I went but, onto Ali's Twitter 
just to get some info about her background, which is why I could say like, you know, writer, former reporter. And she had talked about this piece as a argument for not doing your work in public, which I feel like we've probably talked about at some point or another. I was wondering how you feel about that. And I don't think you really do share work in progress in public. I don't share that much at all. Yeah. I'm not actually like, I realize that this is, could be a good, bad thing for me. What do you mean by good, bad? I mean, I think there's a good, what's the bad? The good part of it would be potential new opportunities by virtue of sharing more work. Great example. Alex, Nate and I did this Herschel video, right? For Matt Aberjale, the chef at Yardbird. And didn't share any work. It's probably something we should have shared, but like, I don't, when I, when I create something, my initial reaction is not to share it. Wait, what do you mean? Cause you guys share the final piece. Yeah. But that was on his, on like, that was on Alex's Instagram. Like I never had the desire to me personally oh, share it. Okay. Okay. Like, got, I don't, got you. Got you. Got you. Got I, it's you. not like I don't have an opinion on things. You know, I have an opinion on a lot of things, <laughs> you but, have an opinion on everything. but I don't share that very often. Sure. Right. And I, I think that that's potentially a, a downfall, but at the same time, I've come to the realization that I feel more at ease with the current way in which I share my life versus me oversharing because of what XYZ might yield. Mm. And I think that this is in many ways sort of the Naomi Osaka discussion too. Is like I like to think I know myself like quite well inside out, and by virtue of knowing myself, then I can make decisions with. A sufficient amount of information because I've I've sort of done that homework, right? But I think in terms of sharing stuff, I think it's good in a certain way. But it's just in reality, different types of how do I put this? Different types of possibilities and opportunities require different strategies. And if I'm okay with my current opportunities or or what I'm putting out, and I don't feel I need to share stuff to elevate it, then I'll probably continue on a path that I feel is sustainable. Versus me going and sharing every single thing out there that might potentially stick with somebody and might yield ABC. Sorry, I want to correct myself. The exact tweet that she wrote was, hey, here's a little essay about why you shouldn't, quotation marks, build in public. Which I paraphrased as, what did I say? Like making work in public, something along those lines. I think she she says in her piece, it's like just being aware of your motivations for sharing what you do with any audience like it's okay i think to share work with the hopes of it earning you money or even that you share work specifically because it will get you paid which in the case of some social media influencers is the case right like the sharing is a requirement to get paid but i think like what she cautions against is just making work so that you can share it as opposed to making work so that it can be whatever it wants to be, like the best thing that it can be. And like the Herschel video, yeah. for example, like you guys would have made it the way it is, even if nobody posted it, which is a good thing. Yeah. For the most part, yeah. Like you didn't think, okay, I'm going to make this video specifically so it's going to do really good on the algorithm or so that I can like post a video every week. Yeah. It was done in a way that obviously had to keep in mind brand goals for Herschel the Bay Company, but also the story we felt was most indicative of what we felt was most important. But I think the re- what I wanted to get to was like understanding why you want to do something is actually critical, right? Like 
you know, when I asked you, and I was actually kind of like a snap judgment slash test, like, like about the book thing, like, why do you want this? And if you can answer me, I think that that's already a step in the direction of finding where, where your sort of balance point is. Cause if you can't answer the why, then you're chasing things that you don't know are worth it or not. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think now this is like Sharice's creative work in progress podcast, but I think a book project is a bigger, longer term project than maybe anything I've done. And that's appealing to me. That would be my why, actually, is like working on something for that duration with that end goal. Yeah, it's weird. I like I like working on projects for a long time, but I don't like projects of long duration with a finite end point. Does that make sense? Like I, I, I could work on something for 10 years and onwards, but I couldn't work on something for 10 years knowing it'd take me 10 years to finish it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like okay, okay, okay. Like you can work on making for 10 years yeah. as like a platform slash brand slash whatever. Whatever, yeah. But you can't work on a book for 10 years. 10 years to reach the end point of like publishing the book. Yeah. And know that the thing took you 10 years. Yeah. Interesting. Like I'm not really big on utilizing time as a determinant of whether something's good or not, but I understand. Yeah, it I'm not, can be valuable. I'm not saying that I think the time will make it good. Okay. Like to be clear, I don't think that if I spent, like, let's say I spent the next five years working on a book and at the end I published this book. I do not think that I would then tell you I spent five years on it. It's so good as like the five years. But a lot of people do. Better. Oh, t- yeah. Yeah. I think what is appealing to me as a creative person is having been able to focus on a project for five years to reach that end, like you said, finite product. Yeah. Which I guess we're different people and like that is appealing to me. And I think that would be interesting even if I was doing like a painting. I mean, I think it'd be wild to spend five years on a painting, but the concept of it is intriguing to me of mm-hmm. like what the final result looks like for yeah. having spent that extended amount of time on it. Yeah. Anyway, let us know what you think. I think this is a good place to wrap up. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>